Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is our podcast covering 25 of our favourite movies of any given decade. This is our fourth and probably final volume where we cover the 1980s. We are four episodes in, episode 79 in total, and we are covering 1981's small, modest, definitely not a franchise hit, Raiders of the Lost Ark from Steven Spielberg. Matthew. Mm. How are you this fine Sunday morning, the day after I spent all day in central London at Pride? Who gives a fuck what my day is like? How was that? <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It was Good. just a lot, of, a busy day of cheap alcohol in tinnies watching parades and in the sun and all the rest of it. But no, good, fun day, which is why I had to watch this movie three nights ago. Okay. I was appalled to learn that despite Disney owning it, it's not on Disney+. Plus. At least in the UK, it probably is. I assume there's just like... some like very old hangover deal that look, yeah. when it expires and like by the time Indie Five comes out next year, they'll be like, "Look, we've got the the entire quintology now yeah. on Disney Plus." And very funny that like literally all of the others are called Indiana Jones in or whatever. And just this first one is just straight up Raiders of the Lost Ark. Not a whiff of Indiana Jones anywhere near the title. I think I've seen like DVD releases or like versions of it where they they retitle it like Raiders of the Lost Ark brackets Indiana Jones or like Indiana Jones in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, that kind of thing. But yeah, just a straight up, no intention at a franchise there. Just here's a movie we made. Here's an adventure movie. We don't make these anymore. But I feel like it's also one of those things where this movie is nowadays, like, you don't buy just one Indiana Jones movie. Like, this no. movie only exclusively sells as a trilogy, quadrilogy box set, depending on how you want to feel about it. And you don't get a movie like this made, and it's just like, well, how would we make seven of them? So, like, I've watched a lot of these in the last year, because obviously I watched all of the Robert Zemeckis movies kind of two years ago at this point, and obviously he's got Romancing the Stone, mm-hmm. which is, like, a very obvious <laughs> kind of, like, three years later, let's try and do this kind of, like, action-adventure with, like, a romantic... Straight white people in jungles <laughs> yeah um the, the kind of the big one also i watched was the mummy which yeah. is like the big 90s answer to this movie that also spawns a franchise but it, it definitely kind of like peters out and like they kind of lose the plot when you get to the tom cruise mummy and then the third one that is kind of like a weird aruboros kind of thing is the tom holland uncharted movie yeah which is like which the games themselves obviously heavily influenced by indiana jones basically being like well what if we made our own ip but it's indiana jones as a game and then they get so big and sony are like let's turn all of our games into movies that i am told that movie made money although it looked like a career killer (laughs) it did make money because tom holland is a star Mm -hmm. but trying to retire from acting because uncharted (laughs) is so bad and then this combination of it actually making money and disney presumably offering him more money than god to keep playing Spider-Man. He's like, oh, what are you talking about? I'm not going to retire from acting. It's just so funny to think that Holland's kind of like last couple of years have been a pandemic hit. He goes immediately into like reshoots on like Chaos Walking, which is a movie that does not exist. Didn't that spend like three years coming out or four? Like it was filmed like before Daisy had wrapped on all of Star Wars and it didn't, has it actually come out? It's come out now. It came out in like 2021, I think, at the very beginning. And that's the one where like you can hear men's thoughts on a weird yes, planet. And it's the one like Charlie K- and like, monsters, people obviously. <laughs> yeah, people were excited because like Charlie Kaufman wrote the first draft. Oh, did he? Of it, oh, sure. But he's not credited on the screenplay when oh. the movie eventually came out. So obviously, all the interesting stuff that he did is just gone from this yeah. movie. So they're like, we like how men are monsters, but what if we could make it less artistic and more just like, yeah, they're all just movie monsters and she has to run from them all? <laughs> yeah. Then you're Spider-Man. He does the the ripoff of video games relationship to Indiana Jones. Like let's go, let's get straight into like the pop culture kind of like ephemera around this movie. Yeah, this movie is we joked about it last week. Like a fucking colossal hit, not yeah. on the level of Star Wars. No, but huge. I think I'm more of an Indiana Jones guy than a Star Wars guy. Oh, absolutely. I will happily stand here and tell you I don't really love Star Wars. All day. It's it is a weird. It's that and Lord of the Rings are the ones that everyone expects me to love because I'm a nerd. And I don't give a shit about either of them, really. All my favourite Star Wars stuff is, like, way off at the side. Anything that is, like, touching the main trilogies, I'm like, eh, whatever. And then Lord of the Rings, you know, we don't need to get into that. But <laughs> everyone expects me to love both of them. And, like, I get all this stuff at work. It's like, oh, meet blah, blah, blah's boyfriend. Look, he's turned up in a Star Wars t-shirt, Matt. Don't you want to be his best friend? I'm like, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what it's funny that you say, like, all my favorite Star Wars off the, off to the sides, where, like, Star Wars is such a cultural monolith. True. That, like, 
you just have to have absorbed some side Star Wars content. Like, exactly. It's impossible it, for you to have just watched the nine movies. It's so large that, like, yeah, there's got to be something out there for everyone. But, like, I think the reason I like Last Jedi so much is because most Star Wars people don't like it. <laughs> and I really like Rogue One, which I think actually a lot of them do like and you don't. But I like Clone Wars, you know, that kind of stuff. But I just no interest in, like, the mainline movies, really. Basically um, the stuff that George Lucas has got, like, his, like, tentacles all over. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, yeah. speaking of George Lucas, yes. he is a credited story writer on this movie, and Amazing. this has like always been his like other franchise. And obviously, we're now getting to Indy Five coming out next year, that will be the first one without the involvement of Spielberg and Lucas. Okay, one of those is more troubling than the other. IMO. Well, it's from the director of Logan, the Secret Western. I know we all freaked out about it at the time, but the further we move away from that, I'm like, I wasn't that good. There's some really good stuff. But the whole clone thing and, like, Donald Blake as the fucking villain, like, you know, all that kind of sucks. <laughs> but... Uh, but, yeah, this movie is such a cultural touchstone where, yeah. like, I immediately was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to watch a YouTube video once I finish this movie that just tells me all the places that the mm. Ark of the Covenant has shown up <laughs> in the last kind of 40 years since this movie came out. Uh-huh. And, boy, howdy, are there a lot of places where the Ark of the Covenant <laughs> has shown up. Like, it's in Tomb Raider. Literally walk around the mansion in the first Tomb Raider movie and you just find the Ark of the Covenant. Of course. Like, it becomes... Just in a house. You're just chilling. It becomes so big and so outsized from this movie that, like, they have to put it into Indiana Jones 4. Oh, yeah, isn't Marion back in... And Marion. I've seen half of it a while ago. Didn't look very good. Aliens, fridges, nuclear bombs, all that shit. It's got some terrible compositing, which is my least favourite part about that movie, where I think, like, there's some good ideas. It's just, you compare, like, the big vehicle chasing in Indiana Jones 4 to the one in this movie, and you're like, oh, no, they did this all on, like, green screen, and they didn't do it all in a real place, and... (laughs) Not that, like, the geography of the car chase in this movie is realistic, but it feels tangible that they're doing all of this shit. And obviously the difference is Harrison Ford was, when he made that movie, in his 60s. Hasn't he, like, horrifically injured himself in multiple ways making this alleged new one? Yes, yes he has. Cool. Um, so I also yeah. like that like there's a parallel there with like while I was watching it I think it stems from your comment which is actually Patton Oswalt's comment I think about like you know back then everyone's like greasy and sweaty and, and hairy and like not actually ripped and everything and these days it would be Chris Hemsworth and it would be cold and it would be clinical and I'm watching it and I'm like I couldn't help but compare it to Mission Impossible you know where like Indy is like kind of a proto Ethan Hunt but he is allowed to fuck up a bit in a way that Ethan just always gets everything completely correct and then the through line of them both coming back to these characters decades afterwards and they've both like fucked up their legs because they're old ass men trying to play these like impossibly ageless protagonists And I mean that's what's so funny about this franchise is obviously like even on the fucking Wikipedia page because Big Bang Theory is so big now is there's a joke in a Big Bang Theory episode where it's like Indiana Jones does nothing in this movie to like actually impact the outcome. Gives it a real good go though. <laughs> I, I take issue with it though because I feel like the Nazis wouldn't know where Marion was if yeah, he wanted to go see her. Yeah, he found the real thing, he found the real location he opened it, he got the Ark out of the hole, he you know, everything. No, but they're, they're basically saying like if... if oh yeah, Nazis... because I mean the, the outcome is he just has to keep his eyes closed and they will just kill themselves. <laughs> but it's also like if the Nazis got the real version of the thing then they wouldn't have dug in the wrong place to start with, yeah, so they would they have didn't. gone to the island so... and, or even they would have taken the Ark to Hitler and opened was... it in front of Hitler and killed Hitler. <laughs> True. No, they would have opened it first to check it was okay. I like the idea that, like, because this movie is set in the 40s, I guess? It's in the 30s. Okay, because Hitler's when... around, there are Nazis, but I guess they're not fully at war. Yeah, Last Crusade is, like, 1939, I think. Like, right, World right, War II right, is right, about right. to break out, and that's about kind of oh, like two, three years before this one. Then. By doing that, I mean, one, it just, what an easy time. The Nazis are the villains, boom, I'm on board. Steven Spielberg, famous for having no issues culturally <laughs> with the Nazis. No, I wish Star Wars wasn't so political. It also makes it feel, like, warm and quaint because it's old and everything. But, like, I just really love the idea that, like, they're digging for a giant chamber underground and they're not that far away from it. And with modern technology, they probably would have just found it in, like, a day. Like, oh, the portable weird radar size monitor thing we have says it's actually over there off we go and they would have just found it but you know it's fine. Yeah, it's, it's just, I mean, there's so much of this movie has kind of like eased into the culture. Like, we've said, like, what, there's Tomb Raider and Uncharted, like, the big ones that are, like, mm-hmm. ripping on this. 
and any time you do like a jungle level in a video game, there'll be an Indiana Jones reference or something like that. If there's a giant ball that's chasing you, it's going to be a fucking <laughs> reference to this movie. And like, I feel like I have to. I feel like I would have played a video game with a reference to Indiana Jones before I watched this movie. Yeah, it's another one where, you know, like we always do like watch your history with the movie, and I feel like for a lot of this volume, especially the, uh, the first half of it, it's just going to be like, this was on TV a lot, and I watched it with my family <laughs> kind of thing, because it was just everywhere, and like, it's so easy to make a PG cut of, like you can just cut out the couple of instances of blood, which they already cut away before you actually see the injury you just see a blood splatter so you just cut a second earlier or whatever but like do, would, would you say this is the one that you watch first i guess is the question for this one <laughs> um because i feel like like obviously that like i would have seen big... it before the ones we've done so far for sure <laughs> no but like in terms of like so in terms of spielberg's career i feel like everyone sees jurassic park one first no one is starting with lost world you're always starting with jurassic park yeah, yeah, yeah. but indiana jones is one of those ones where like you could watch any of the three and like you're not kind of adrift yeah it's possible i saw last crusade first but i think i saw raiders first i i have like barely any memory of temple of doom whatsoever honestly couldn't tell you other than there's the kid and it all feels a bit racist is that also the one with the monkey brain it is the one with the monkey brain is there something supernatural in that one he, he rips someone's heart out through his that's chest. it cali ma cali ma he rips his heart out yeah okay fine but like is there like a big like because that's the thing like you, you spend of the 115 minutes including credits you know you spend what 110 of them 105 of them it's just straight up we're looking for a religious relic and they're like no ghosts holy ghosts and then in the third one you've obviously got yeah here's a dude who's been alive since the crusades and this is actually jesus's gobbler and then you've got aliens in the fucking fourth one like is there something that big in temple of doom there isn't really but that's mostly because like you have the line in this movie where indy goes i don't believe in magic so like <laughs> and he didn't Kalimar, see it <laughs> yeah kalimar is like the the one moment but the thing is like someone could maybe punch some a chest in someone's right ha- holding someone's chest and pull right. their heart out yeah maybe maybe and you can definitely kill someone by punching their nose into their brain all of these things are possible <laughs> sorry i'm this is going to be the sidetrack episode because just everything leads into something else i can't remember what you were asking me did i see I know, this so, one so first i think i, think I, think I watched so. last crusade first as well is yeah. i think and i think that's the one that's kind of like a touchstone in the uk because it's got connery i think yeah like my you know everyone's mum in love with sean connery definitely mine and i grew up on that i i think i've seen that one the most times and i have a soft spot for it i think internationally it's the one where people are like it's all right you know it's not the i mean best doom's one. doom's always <laughs> been my least favorite of like the original three yeah it's a weird franchise where like the first one is such a crystallized thing but again last crusade is the one i've seen the most times just because yeah. it's so rewatchable mm-hmm. but it like i mean it's also uh, one with like a proper ensemble cast where like yeah. by the end of it it's like five people hanging out trying to like solve this thing yeah, I, I think giving people multiple people to talk to is generally a good formula for success. It's just really good, isn't it? It's just so iconic. Yeah. Like I literally at film school when I when I when I had pretensions of, of becoming a big film boy. But look at me now with my podcast. We studied the opening, you know, like see all these little things they do to make it all seem blah blah. You know, the, the use of shadow, the two hats, the see how the boulder is basically hit him at the end of every shot, and then it's further away at the beginning of the next one to create this. Per- perpetual illusion of he's just about to get smushed but i mean there's a reason like literally all of it is just so baked into pop culture spielberg at the height of his powers well he spent a long time at the height of his powers i suppose i mean this is this is spielberg early on kind of like perfecting the blockbuster and i think that's kind of like so much of this early career is is like you you go through this and you realize we're what six years removed from jaws he's done close encounters 1941 in between 1941 kind of an infamous flop but he then follows this up with et indiana jones and he basically kind of then kind of goes like one for you then indiana jones and then once he's done with indiana jones in 89 it's just like jurassic park (laughs) and then he's kind of in modern spielberg where he's kind of a little bit more politically minded a little bit quieter in terms of his movies but the 80s of literally like Raiders, E.T., Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom, Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, Last Crusade, always hook Jurassic Park Schindler's List. Is yeah. this just kind of like Jesus Christ, dude? <laughs> like you perfected what the blockbuster should be, and at the end of it, you kind of also managed to perfect the political aspirations that you've got in stuff like Color Purple and Empire of the Sun. Incredible stuff. Yeah, like I said, like it, it just he's 
probably unmatched in in certainly in western filmmaking in terms of like iconography like he knows how to make something that like will tower over for all time like nobody has more like big cultural moments under their belt than him yeah i mean we we talked about it on the jurassic park episode in volume three that like when you're at school and you're young this is kind of like the one director you know and i don't know (laughs) if that changes now in the modern vernacular whether or not like is nolan one of those directors but it definitely is not for like kids i don't think i think kids are already like the dark knight that's an old movie You can say it, but that's true. They're more likely uh, to know Snyder. But yeah, like that's a bit like just he is a towering behemoth that is like everyone's kind of first and because he makes so many family movies and he mm-hmm. makes movies that you can just like gather around and watch and you don't feel that kind of like dirty thing for like liking them when you're a teenager either. Like like so many kids movies that we like, you always go for that kind of like four to five years family. Like no, that's for babies. I don't like that anymore. <laughs> and then you realize in your twenties that like no, I was dumb. I should have continued liking the baby thing because it was well made. Yeah, but Raiders. It's just like a little something for everyone, you know? It's in no way aimed at children. It's just okay for children to watch, I think, is the thing. Mm. Um, they do have a commitment to jokes, as well as all the like high-tension stuff. Like, you have dumb shit, like she slams the mirror into his face. And, and <laughs> the car way to the... Yeah, it lets out the most guttural scream, and then she says, did you say something? It's like, what the fuck? They're committed to doing little jokes like that throughout and doing his wacky faces while he's being searched while posing as a German officer and everything and punching him and he catches the hat. You know, they're committed to doing these kinds of jokes, but then it's also just like, it's never like so absurdly silly that like, it's like, ugh, this is for children. So let's do some context before okay. we jump into the movie in general. So basically, I think it's fair to say there's only one other movie that we would have even contemplated covering from Spielberg for this decade, and it's E.T. It is. I don't know. I think I need to give it a really good sit down and watch again because I've always just been like, huh, E.T.'s fine, and everyone fucking loves E.T. I know I can be weird about certain things, but like, I don't know. I think I just need to rewatch it again. But I, I'm confident in saying I prefer Raiders. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm confident in saying I prefer Raiders as well, but E.T. Yeah. is kind of like, E.T. feels like it's the platonic version of Spielberg, I mm. feel, for a lot of people. Like, I, I just some of the imagery feels so indebted to Spielberg that mm. I feel like it's, like, when people talk about the Amblin style, like, it's always E.T., like something well, like Super 8. It's on the riffing logo, on, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, it's just that insane kind of like one-to-one where like even with the amount of movies that he's got under his belt it just feels like Spielberg and E.T. are like tied together but Raiders is a bad movie so yeah. we're discussing Raiders <laughs> right so we did critically acclaimed movies from 1981 last time but we also told you that basically this is the most acclaimed movie of 1981 so Matt <laughs> why don't you run us through both the box office and the Oscars sure what do you want first dirty money or dirty awards dirty money first dirty money okay number one by a considerable margin Raiders of the Lost Ark 367 million dollars for number one ahead of for your eyes only Bond not big in America at the time only made 50 million in the US so a lot of it's total coming internationally Superman 2 On Golden Pond Stripes Arthur Fort Apache The Bronx and American Werewolf in London Chariots of Fire and Cannonball Run are the top 10. I wanted to find what was number 79 for episode 79, but it stops at number 71 <laughs> with Rollover, a movie Only I have not... movies released in, in this year. <laughs> I mean, possible, uh, like, in terms of, like, anything resembling a wide release. I wouldn't say that's, like, a juggernaut of a year. Clash of the Titans down at 12. Cheech and Chong. <laughs> Escape from New York, 32. Oh, ouch. Halloween 2, only 31. I guess horror wasn't ringing the crowds like it does these I mean, days, horror's but... always been one of those genres where, like, you make it for 3 million and then it makes kind of, like, 3 yeah, times the budget. true. Get a big guy, make him look weird. So, you know, a huge, huge huge hit 225 domestic 141 international these numbers again I say this every time we talk about it it sounds small like that's Ant-Man money and they declare Ant-Man a failure but like if you adjust this this is probably a 1.5 billion dollar movie or something like that um, yeah <laughs> by modern standards over on the old white people meeting in a room to make incorrect decisions front Best picture is won by Chariots of Fire over Atlantic City, On Golden Pond, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Reds. Spielberg also 
loses out on Best Director to Warren Beatty for Reds. No acting nominations. I don't yeah, think. this is the, the ultimate version of like it's a blockbuster. We're only going to give it big blockbuster awards. So like yeah. it's up for score. Yeah, it wins yeah. sound. It wins art direction. It wins editing. It wins visual effects. It loses cinematography, which is the only one of those where I'm like, eh, sure. I, I, it's not, <laughs> yeah, why it's, not? It's not, now, not the best cinematography movie, but like it losing my, score. And yeah, it not being nominated for actor. That's are, the one I'm looking at. I'm like, look, I know that the the closing piece from Chariots of Fire is incredibly iconic. However, I posit to you, one of the best decisions Raiders makes is play the Raiders theme about once every ten minutes, (laughs) and it fucks every time. (laughs) And I would have given it to that over Chariots of Fire. I mean, especially because Vangelis has got Blade Runner the next year. Right, (laughs) exactly. Which I don't even think it's nominated for. Like, if it's Uh, not. I don't, yeah. Yeah, they don't nominate Vangelis the next year for Blade Runner, which I think goes to say how kind of like down in the public consciousness Blade Runner is, but Jesus Christ. Every time they're like, should I write a different piece of music for this one? Nah, just hit the theme again, it rules. Okay, cool, and it does. Yeah, I would flip John Williams' E.T. win with Vangelis' Church of Fire win and give them like the opposite years. Yeah, as I said, like Harrison Ford not being up for best actor, mm. so he, he would have been up against Henry Fonda, who wins for On Golden Pond, Warren Beatty, Burt Lancaster, Dudley Moore, and Paul Newman. Harrison needs to be in there. He's so good, and, and like, you know, I'm talking about secrets to its success. There are many, there, but another one. Just hired possibly the most attractive man of all time, and it, it, it's this 80s era Harrison Ford. Um, just a staggeringly handsome man. It's crazy to think when I was watching this movie, and like the opening sequence of this movie holds back on showing you Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. For a good The iconic step out of the shadow. Yeah, you know, iconic is like most of the shots in this movie, but yeah, you know, him stepping in broad daylight, but stepping out of a shadow, and then just like, ah, here's Harrison Ford who's about to be on kind of this insane kind of like four-year run for him or five-year run for him where like he's obviously done New Hope and he's got kind of like a big kind of like he's in Apocalypse Now in 79 but then you have 1980 Empire Strikes Back 1981 Raiders of the Lost Ark 1982 Blade Runner 1983 Return of the Jedi 1984 Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom yep He is obviously a huge part of what makes the Star Wars trilogy work, or the original trilogy work as well as it does. Yeah. Whenever it's getting too adrift, you're just like, here's Han doing some fucking dirty, greasy guy shit, and it's like, yeah. Yeah, and there's a reason why they pinned Force Awakens on him. They didn't give us a lot of carry, and they didn't give us a lot of mark in that first movie. They pinned it an awful lot on Harrison Ford, because he is still kind of like the, the iconic, and obviously still the biggest star. Yeah. Of those original I think I think the joke Family Guy maker, the only actor whose career wasn't destroyed by this movie. <laughs> but yeah, him him stepping out the shadows to me is just kind of this moment where like mm. he goes from being supporting charismatic sidekick kind of thing to genuinely the biggest movie star in the world in that one second in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like everyone who watches Star Wars knows that he can carry a movie on his own, but he's not the focus, he's not the lead, and it takes them five minutes of this movie to make him into a fucking star. It's one of the most insane pieces of kind of like Spielberg directing, Harrison Ford just being a natural charisma, like John Williams score swelling at the same time. It's all so well calculated to just manufacture this man into being someone who will be the lead of Hollywood movies now for 20 years. Like, and Harrison Ford's career will not really dip until... When would you say Harrison Ford's kind of, like, star power is kind of, like... Probably post-Air think... Force One. Cowboys and Aliens isn't... I mean, I know he's not the lead of that, but... Air Force One 97. I would say that feels couple... like one of the last ones where it's like, oh my god, it's Harrison Ford, like... He's in, I, what Lies Beneath, to me, is like a big movie, and I feel like it isn't for a lot of people, but I would say when K-19, The Widowmaker's coming out, and he's in that, to be like, mm, okay. Yeah, like, the, the the big adult movies where he's kind of, like, taking two years off between each one of them, he's not really mm-hmm. kind of, like, the thing is, he's getting paid a lot of money to do these kind of middling adult dramas, is kind of, like, the end of end of yeah. this run, but he's, like, pushing it a little bit, and then, then he really just doesn't do much after that, like, no. 2013 is, like, the busiest he's been yeah. in, in... Where they're just weaponizing his reputation almost and like he's taking some stuff for the money and there's a combination there like you know I feel 42 is something he would actually genuinely want to do I haven't seen Paranoia Ender's Game is a cynical cash grab Anchorman 2 is a you know like what if we got fucking Harrison Ford to be in this fucking thing yeah same Um, thing as Expendables 3 is like let's just get Harrison Ford to come do this fucking movie and then obviously he then has the back to back like his two of his most iconic roles doing the legacy sequel and obviously he's coming 
coming back to do the third of his most iconic roles to do a legacy sequel. Just missing him coming back to do Jack Ryan again. <laughs> Maybe yeah. they should do a crossover of all the Jack Ryan people who've played Jack Ryan. Uh, so, so many at this point. Baldwin, Paul, um, Affleck, Pine, Krasinski mm. in the same movie. I'm surprised no one's touched The Fugitive since he did it. Like that, that show was huge, and I feel that movie was pretty big too. I'm surprised there hasn't been a remake of Fugitive, to be honest. I mean, that, that is baffling that they haven't done a remake of Fugitive. But yeah. Sorry, it's <laughs> the tangent episode. It's the tangent episode. Right. I mean, this movie's been picked over. Like you said, you studied this in film school to like study the opening. And yeah. the only thing I have new to bring to that is just like, oh, look, it's fun to see Alfred Molina playing like a <laughs> Spanish person. <laughs> Not the most offensive, like, racial miscasting. <laughs> Although, I don't know what Alfred Molina's uh, ethnic origin is, but he's definitely very English. But yeah, like, he's fun. It's just something I observed is, like, literally every character in this movie exists to freak the fuck out about everything. And Indy <laughs> is just mildly perturbed by it all. It's not that he's completely cool with it. It's just it's all a bit of an annoyance to him. And they are all, like, terrified. Melina is like basically biting his fingernails off watching him do all the stuff. Like everyone's screaming whenever they see like corpses and, and everything and yeah indeed like it all feels every element is a satellite orbiting around Indy to make Indy the coolest motherfucker in the world. And and yeah, like Melina is, is great here and it's it's a shame he bites it in like under five minutes, but hey. Um. I mean it's it's <laughs> Watching it, I was kind of like, one of the smartest things that The Mummy does is they realise the power of a character like Satipo, and they make Benny into, like, a fourth lead mm. in The Mummy movie, and have him around the entire time, to the point where you're, like, rooting for him to die at the end. Like, you can, like, pretty much one-to-one almost every character from Indiana Jones onto a character in yeah. The Mummy. Yeah. Like, like Salah is basically the same as... um Omid Dijilali's character in The Mummy. Except, know. obviously, Dijilali is kind of, like, a bit more gruff and kind of, like, a, a, ultimately a villain, but, like, yeah. the character archetypes are there of, like, here's a local yeah, person it's, it's who the local, has a bit yeah. of... And, like, obviously, Karen Allen onto Rachel Weisz mm-hmm. and Denholm Elliott onto, onto the brother uh, the brother in The Mummy. Like, it, it's all funny how, like, you make these archetypal bits, but The Mummy kind of has it turned into an ensemble cast, mm. whereas Indiana Jones is like, no, Harrison Ford is the lead, and we're going to, like, swap out, swap in these people. And the only person in this movie who was kind of asked to carry a scene without Harrison Ford being in the room is Karen Allen. Yeah. For, like, the one moment where she's, like, kidnapped by the, the Nazis and by Belloc. You know, their deep commitment to she's one of the lads you know, probably helps her in this movie. Like, I'm glad it isn't... She's not a full-on damsel. Like, she is kind of orchestrating her escape, but then she's caught and everything. And, you know, we meet her by drinking a guy under the table. You know, she stops in the middle of a fight to drink some of the whiskey that's, like, pouring all over the floor and everything. And she's a little bit rough and ready, but then, like, she does have to be put into a nice white dress and turned into, like, a hostage and just screaming and everything. But I, I like the character is a little bit... Like, by her own choice, she's she's rough and tumble kind of thing and, and you know, is not best pleased to see Indy, but then, obviously, because he's the most handsome man in the world just ends up back with him and then I do like the intense vibes towards the end of like well now we're back in America and there are other women I'm not so sure about this commitment we made to each other <laughs> maybe you can not be here next time I'm on screen <laughs> but as I said she is back in the, in the fourth one I don't know how big that role is I honestly uh, don't pretty big because she's she's okay. Shia LaBeouf's mum oh okay so the implication that he's the dad gotcha yes fun what a great actor to cast for that yeah. definitely going to be in the fifth one <laughs> this movie just fucking works like it's it's alchemical like every single bit of this movie kind of like builds into the next bit like mm-hmm. you get the kind of like the rip roaring opening sequence that is being like picked over to death with mm-hmm. the with the, the giant boulder and the, the sandbag and i do and, and, and that's an example plane. where like it feels like i think the ethan hunt stuff works because they know it's ridiculous and they lean into it and the joke is that he's so perfect but like you're sitting there watch Indy just eyeball it and take a bit of sand out and I'm like there is no fucking way you know how much that weighs by looking at it and it doesn't work is the good thing you know it's like oh cool of course he knew to do that and you think he's gotten away with it and he doesn't i think that is the key is that like gross protocol we talked about in in secret agent men brad bird had this deep commitment to what if all the tech kind of just fucks up and like they spend that whole movie like 
flying by the seat of their pants and like everything doesn't go quite to plan and they just improvise their way out of it and I think that was a great stroke to do and I feel that's Indiana Jones in a nutshell is that like he is this very smart resourceful guy who comes up with these these clever things to do and they just don't quite work out and he just has to do something else instead and that feels like the ethos of the movie in general as well I mean obviously one of the most famous pieces of like pop culture trivia about this movie is they have an entire choreographed fight in in Egypt that like on the day Harrison Ford had food poisoning and so the most iconic piece of like accidental characterization is Indiana Jones pulling the gun out and shooting the guy with the sword it feels like a real like I don't know if it I mean yeah obviously it's it's not on purpose but like you could paint a picture of Han shot first being this like ridiculous argument point for decades and like on some level they want to be like no Han would never shoot first but like they totally want Han to have shot first so like no fuck it Indiana Jones just shoots people fuck it and I think I you know that is similar to the casting thing of like I mean he is incredibly handsome but you know he is he is just like a sweaty like greasy dude like this is not like the most clean cut man he is willing to just shoot that guy like the fights are like clumsy he gets ass kicked by the big bald guy to the point he like falls on his ass in like a like almost comical way he's got some skills but he's still fundamentally he's just some guy you know (laughs) He's an archaeology professor who does yeah. this on the side. And that's like, again where I, not... I feel you see like Ethan Hunt fights a big dude in Rogue Nation and he wins. He does take some hits, but he's like, okay, fine. And it's like, there's this sense that like, there's no person that Ethan Hunt can't take in a fight. There's no person James Bond can't take in a fight, etc. And Indiana Jones is like, I think there's plenty of people that could take Indy in a, in a fight, but like, he'll find some weird way out of it. He'll just run away yeah, like, and he doesn't mind yeah. running away. <laughs> All the fights he wins in this movie with people who are stronger than him are won by accident or because he's got some kind of, like, something that gives him the slight upper hand that means he doesn't have to do the fight quite as well. But, like, again, I imagine making this movie nowadays and you kind of get this idea that, like, if someone came up with, like, an entire piece of choreography, they're like, well, we're going to do it. We've got a stunt double. He'll do most of it. You just need to be there for, like, three shots, Harrison. And it just kind of, like, you lose that improvisational character element to him in this. Where, like, it just fits so well. Even, Even with everything else this movie like Indy losing the fight on the on the air, airport and like the guy being completely fucking shredded by the, <laughs> the propeller, uh, by the yeah. propeller. I would go as far as to say that that gun moment is the single most important part of Indiana Jones in my opinion this is the movie's mission statement almost in a, in a nutshell that kind of thing um, yeah and it, I mean ob- and I just appreciate that they allow themselves to paint Indy as like less than perfect like yes he's like incredibly attractive and yes the scene where like he's naked and asking Marion to like kiss him at places where it doesn't hurt is so incredibly effective and so incredibly hot but like yeah. the first time they see each other is Marion kind of going like you know how old I was like what did you do? <laughs> disgusting yeah <laughs> they leave it largely innuendo but um yeah some stuff happening there for sure it's just impressive that they allow it to play off because I, I don't know how much of the tabloid stuff about Harrison Ford and, and Carrie Fisher is happening right or if that's like a decade later thing but like it's very much the when same when she comes out and is like we banned each other absolutely fucking senseless <laughs> <laughs> but like he also has taken advantage of me because he was a married man who was like yeah. 20 years older than me and it's just impressive that like they're kind of taking what assumedly everyone on the set of Star Wars knew that this was happening like it can't have been that big a secret and they're allowing themselves to paint Indiana Jones as functionally Harrison Ford but with like mm-hmm. a little bit more swagger in terms of like he, he's an international translator and stuff like that and I mean it does kind of organically bring us to the other kind of problematic element of this movie of like he's stealing cultural artifacts from museums yeah. put them in museums and it's so funny to think that like I feel like the entire cultural discourse at this point has become museums bad museums bad took a while though didn't it? it took a real while <laughs> to the like, point where we've got uh, his Killmonger like who is actually right until he wants to like you know start a global war but yeah like the iconic scene for Killmonger in, in the museum just pointing out where all these things came from and everything and, uh, I feel we've all as a culture become anti-zoo and anti-museum finally see the thing is I'm not anti-museum I'm anti-museum in well, America and United Kingdom taking these artifacts if you wanted to yeah. fund a museum in Egypt to post these artifacts absolutely. go fucking for it like, yeah, that's yeah, where yeah. they it, came it's, from it's the yeah it's that side of it like British museums should be full of British artifacts or things that are on loan that happens that's fine I'm fine with like 
this is going to spend six months at the, at the Louvre. This is going to spend six months, you know, wherever. Um, which is an art gallery. I'm very cultured. I couldn't think of a famous museum. Amazing. Just think of all the ones that Marvel shot at last year. <laughs> True. They love a museum, don't they? Yeah, I'm fine with loaning stuff, but, like, you should not. Every British museum is just filled with fucking shit from Egypt. And it's like, this isn't right, is it? Or, like, India from when we colonised them. That's, and then you that have, stuff have literally fine. Indiana Jones as the white coloniser coming through, <laughs> stealing things and going, like, no, better. Yes, probably better that it isn't inside a tomb. Sure. And also probably better it's not with the Nazis. But, like, he has this almost ideological belief that, like, these things need to be seen by Americans. <laughs> okay. But it's always that interesting thing where, like, obviously... Salah is like well on his side that we need to set the arc. He's a he's a good person despite the fact he is Egyptian, even though he's played by the very, 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 very well Sean Reese Davis. Amazing stuff. Just that accent is so dodgy and like <laughs> this was just the era for this shit, wasn't it? They're just like, right, Brits can do accents, kinda. Find any who have vaguely dark complexions and they will be the foreigners. <laughs> I don't know what they're kind of doing here is like he's obviously someone who is like morally good and enjoys this and he's just perfectly happy to watch people like rob tombs and take them to other countries and stuff like that like there's no I don't know whether or not like the Egyptian people because obviously like at the turn of the century it was the huge craze to be raiding all these tombs. Mm-hmm. Like, Tutankhamun was obviously found yes. in the early 1900s. That's, like, the big one. Like, the, the huge, like, cultural, like... But, yeah. like, were there people there who they were hiring to do these excavations who were like, maybe don't take that away? Almost certain. But, you know, the power of colonialism. Uh, and um, obviously it's what things like Moon Knight are rebelling against nowadays, where they're like, we want to show you, like, actual Egypt. We don't want to show you <laughs> the Egypt where the roads are deserts and here's, everyone is, here's like... Here's some stock footage. <laughs> For five seconds, look what a good job we did. But the the the, the need is there when like yeah. when you're watching this movie, you kind of do go like this paints a picture of Egypt as being this like uncultured land, and obviously mm-hmm. they kind of get the pass of setting it in the 1940s, not the 1980s, mm-hmm. where like there probably isn't the level of modernization, and they they kind of get to get away with it. But it does oh. come off as this kind of like this now becomes the view of the people in the Western world's view of kind of like the Middle East and and Africa is all desert and everyone lives in these kind of like huts and there's no very little mm-hmm. modernizations around and it's it's gross in a way but you also kind of because it's a movie about nazis and finding religious artifacts and it's set as far in the past it is you kind of get this disconnect where you can kind of overlook it even though this movie causes so much cultural damage about the overall optics of yeah. that part of the world in a time where like africa was being carved up by europe is the sort of uncomfortable undercurrent of it that they're just like oh look fun things are happening and aren't Nazis bad and you kind of have to forget about all of that you get away with it because this movie is so impeccably made and I feel like it's why worse movies than this kind of suffer for it a lot more Mm. is because this movie again everything is pitched so perfectly even with it being problematic just in terms of what the outset of it is like the entire idea of it is colonial but it affects other movies down the line more than it affects this one. Yeah, and, and you have, well, <laughs> I was going to say minorities. What we're claiming are minorities. All just falling over themselves at how wonderful a man Indiana Jones is, and they've heard of his legend, and you you, you know, you have Captain Katanga, like, oh, you're exactly as I imagined you would be, and, and, and stuff like that, and, and Salar is like, oh, this man is, this is, this man is my family. Like, very cute when he sends all the kids to, uh, to get him out of the cafe or whatever. But yeah, it, it is a little bit like, mm, okay. I mean, I, I still think this movie's a masterpiece. I of course. I think it's one of the most pieces of like American filmmaking to ever come out. Of course. It's, it's generation defining. It kind of sets the template for action movies for, for 20, 30 years until we end up in yeah. the kind of like CGI hell that we are in now. I wish more movies were <laughs> felt this kind of like pulled together at the last minute. Yeah. Like, I feel they're making a vague attempt to bring back the adventure movie, but they're all just falling on their asses because the cultural taste has changed, unfortunately. But yeah, and it, it does what Spielberg always does. It signposts itself, it sets things up. Right at the beginning, you establish Indiana Jones does not like snakes in the plane. There is a giant snake in the plane. Why, you know, and he just yells, I hate snakes. Harrison Ford claims to hate snakes. I don't believe him because I have phobia of snakes and there is no number you could write on a piece of paper that would make me do that scene, the scene. I don't care how many mirrors, how much glass you can see, I would not step within a mile of that room 
for all the money in the world and uh, he with an alleged hatred of snakes or fear of snakes maybe that's the distinction he doesn't like them rather than he's afraid of them yeah the, the room full of 9,000 snakes which it's the funniest thing of this movie and it's the ultimate kind of like this is the kind of thing that cinema sins would go like well actually but assuredly this this city has been buried under the sand for, for hundreds if not thousands <laughs> of years at this point how the fuck are there still like alive and why are they eating society <laughs> a snake society Captain America will hit, be here to punch them in a minute um, <laughs> yeah. it's the same thing in the tomb at the beginning where it's like hundreds of years after this tomb was apparently set up like all the rope work needed for like to set up all these booby traps hasn't still... decayed hasn't frayed yeah yeah all, all right there yeah and I'm obviously I've seen this scene a few times I do kind of like cringe and look away every few seconds so I mean I'm not gonna be as able to contribute to this discussion as you but like yeah I mean I've heard things like you know they put a thousand snakes down that didn't look enough so they added another two thousand snakes and that wasn't enough and then they ended up with nine thousand snakes to try and achieve that look of the entire floor as snakes and if you look at it still isn't actually quite that they just chose a very large room is the problem (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's a huge room, but they also have to like make it so that like there's a central bit where the actors yeah. can stand yeah, and not yeah, be yeah. affected by the snakes. And yeah. obviously, like they say, asps, which obviously the the famous snake that Cleopatra used to to right. kill herself with. But we've got like a king cobra in there. We've got what looks like a fucking python from South America. Like they're clearly throwing a through in a few in there that probably would have not been with the others. But, and also, uh, like they're almost all all of them will be like if they're poisonous, they're going to be very mildly poisonous, and they've got someone off the side who's got like snake po- snake anti-venom on them and all the rest of it but it's fucked it's, man <laughs> it's just one of those again iconic scenes where why did it have to be snakes but i mean because indiana jones hates snakes indeed he made a rod for his own back and i do like them being like mm, ass very dangerous you go first <laughs> the fuck i will i mean it is ultimately fine like no one gets bitten they do it's not even that big a deal to be honest like, no, like... indiana jones starts the scene by setting half of them on fire <laughs> Like, no. he brings down some petrol, or or gas, or whatever you want it, gasoline or whatever. But even um, before that, he's just kicking sand at them, and like, oh, I don't like that. <laughs> and, you know, you get the cobra that's, like, mimicking their, their movements and stuff. But the one like, that was obviously trained, like, the one yeah, thing that they obviously yeah. trained on the day. And then you've got that one that's, like, very sleepily on the statue, looking right at him, and then he kills it and drops it down on her. Very funny bit. <laughs> IMO pouring through holes in the wall. Like, Why are they? What? Where? <laughs> what? <laughs> it's just it's fun because it adds some tension, but not mm. enough tension that you feel threat. Almost. I, it, I think I think that's the thing is there is a constant low level of tension, and you know he's going to be okay, but not in a way that breaks it, in a way that makes it more fun. Like you're just like, oh, what? How's he going to get out of this one? Ah, oh, there he goes. Yeah, um, the last thing is like even when the Nazis like close the lid on the tomb, you're still kind of like, well, he's gonna figure his way out. Like yeah. they're gonna find their way out, and of course they do. They find out that like all of these underground bits are like really connected, and so he's like two seconds away from being able to get outside, making and... it even more ridiculous. They couldn't find the fucking thing. <laughs> in oh, that look, again, um... iconic like holding the staff in the air and like the CGI laser beam of sunlight. Oh, it's um, so good. It is so good, and like again. The mark of something good is you've seen it parodied like 19 times in all of the cartoons and the movies and stuff. And then kind of like the moment they escape the tomb, the movie is then just in like a a 20 minute action sequence. Like it just does not let up now for 20 minutes. And why do they fight the people on the the airport? Because they're trying to steal a plane? I I guess. There's no reason for them to kind of like, because immediately after this, they obviously then go chase after the Ark in the back of the car and there's a reason for them to do that. But like Mm. this, this first sequence is just kind of like, we just want to have an action sex section at this point <laughs> again it's more like of the two action sequences at this point even though i feel like they do the car chase in kind of like every single movie like mm. it, it's repeated in ways that are all very similar like obviously yeah. in in last crusade you've got the tank <laughs> the tank version of it and indiana jones finally fucking goes off that cliff see with a map painting but like in this one like the air the airplane fight is is so iconic mostly because of the way that it ends with them shredding the fucking guy and the petrol and the tension of like trying to get marion out of the front of the plane the huge fucking explosion at the end speaking of which actually sorry just to derail you from us talking about like the final stretch they give you a good like 10-15 minutes where he's like oh marion died fuck (laughs) And it's like, you know, he's sad, but it's like, he's not that sad. 
he drinks like half a bottle of whiskey with a Nazi monkey. Sure, which he keeps with him because she liked it, I guess. And then it eats, it eats some poison dates. I, I did have to tell my partner off for being sad that the Nazi monkey died. Like the monkey so, does a fucking does a Nazi salute. Like, it's not a good monkey. <laughs> it does do that. It's not even just an unwilling participant. It's fully it, it, it's engaging in the uh, in the behaviours. Bad monkey. Bad monkey. It's a bad monkey, and I'm glad it dies from eating a poison date. <laughs> <laughs> okay, when we finally get merch, that's going on a t-shirt. And also, like, you know, to sort of come back to the point of allowing the thing to be a bit clumsy, when he finds she's alive in the tent, that kiss oh. is so, like, kind of ugly and clumsy, but it makes it feel really, like, authentic. That, like, yeah, I mean, people that, don't have, always like, have Authentic big... chemistry. Yeah, I would not yeah. be surprised to find out that Harrison Ford and Karen Allen were screwing the entire time this movie was in production. <laughs> it's in his rider. He has to screw the lead actress. And then the fact that, like, he then realises, like, I'm so close to finding the arc, I'm just gonna cover your mouth up and, and go away. I'll be back, don't worry, but, like, we're so close to finding the arc. And I, if, guess, if I guess it would ruin it if I let you out. Um, just hang out for a bit. You'll be fine, probably. <laughs> it, it just, I mean, again, it's the thing that makes this movie, like, as you say, like they would be scared of making their heroic character kind of this shitty. Even when you're in modern movies and you have characters riffing on this, and uh, obviously the other one that we haven't brought up that is very famously riffing on this kind of archetype is Chris Pratt in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Who gets moments of being like this, but the moment he's with Gamora, he isn't. They just can't pick a lane with him, is the thing. Look, if you're writing this character in a way that like is actually narratively rich, it's that he is a scared little boy playing at being Indiana Jones. So like the real him is actually a sweet young man, and he's just doing his best to cosplay as Han Solo, as Indiana Jones, etc., etc. And the facade comes down, and blah blah blah. But it's more just like, ah, look at him, he's Tony Stark in space, kind of. Anyway. This will age the podcast, but did you see he's trying to rebrand because he's gotten the memo that people don't like he's a crazy religious man? And he's yes, like, oh, I'm obviously. not that religious. Obviously, I'm not that religious. And like, I'm sad. I'm sad that people took the thing where I said that I cried when I had a son. Too seriously, because I've got a daughter who's going to read that shit. And it's like, well, maybe you shouldn't have said that. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and implied that like your son. new wife is better than your old wife. And, and yeah, anyway. I'm sure Chris Pratt will still be a bad man when this comes out and it won't have aged it too badly. Hey, it's fine. His new Amazon TV show has come out. You know, the star of two of the biggest movies, movie franchises in the world should definitely be doing an Amazon streaming series. Mm-hmm. And That's how broken our, st- our star-leading, acting-leading man franchise uh, world is at this point. Yeah, where... and his, his next biggest roles are all voice. He, he's voicing all of our animated faves and ruining it all. Um... He's genuinely someone who they were talking about it on like a subreddit I was reading the other day where it's like Chris Pratt starts off his career and we're all so fucking happy to see him in movies yeah. like he's great in Moneyball he's great in Guardians he's great in Lego Movie yeah. and you're like cool Zero Dark Thirty you found kind of like your lane in terms of like you play a schlubby kind of person who's got like a heart of gold and mm-hmm. you can do this kind of thing and, and then an all time bag fumble <laughs> yeah and then immediately but goes like right so I did Guardians that means I'm an action star now so I'm going to do Jurassic World and like all these movies and he's just shit at picking projects like he just has no taste in terms of like the stuff that he's making and he thinks he wants to be like the next Arnold Schwarzenegger but instead he should have just carried on being Chris Pratt I think someone said it's just such a very transparent this guy's entire life is run by a marketing campaign like a PR company kind of thing and it's just it's a very artificial attempt to portray himself as oh I'm still Andy from Parks it's like nah you're not bro (laughs) you stopped being that a long time ago we learned too much about you anyway Harrison Ford is unapologetically Harrison Ford always has been I love his deep commitment to not giving a shit about Star Wars I love his deep commitment to continuing to fly his plane even though he is apparently not very good at it based on the amount of times he's fucking crashed his plane (laughs) yeah maybe there's a snake in it Um, maybe there is a snake in it (laughs) But yeah, you know, we spend the last 20 minutes of the movie basically with him hanging off various vehicles, boarding various vehicles. Fucking submarine is so good. (laughs) Just the shot of him, like, climbing on the submarine, then climbing higher on the submarine, I assume because, like, they make it sort of clear that the submarine isn't going to go underwater before they hit this island. (laughs) And, like, all the people in the boat fucking cheering for him. Yeah. Yeah, it's fucking movie star. It's fucking Harrison Ford. Of course you're going to fucking cheer for him getting on the submarine. Cue the music. (laughs) And they do. 
Yeah, and then for it to all wrap up with like them tied to a post, and the ghosts, are, the the holy ghosts are nice enough to like untie them as part of their their rampage. Because otherwise, can you imagine if they just they just died because they're out in the middle of nowhere tied to a post that they can't get off, and they just starve to death, and that's the end of the movie. It's crazy that this ending works. Like yeah. there is no narrative conclusion to this movie. Functionally, it's just the Nazis open a chest, and then they all die horrifically. Yep, face as melting. As Head exploding. Yeah. To this day, no one can decide if that if those special effects fuck or if they're awful. They're so good. I mean, they're I so agree. cheesy and over the top, but like they've aged awfully. But they're so goofy that like. And it's really like the beginning, the first, all of the rest of the movie. You can easily make a cut where it's PG, and you hit this segment that is basically designed in a lab to terrify children who are all going to watch this too young, and they're just like, I don't know how they got it past. I mean, I don't actually know what the official age rating of it is, but I feel everyone saw this as a kid and was freaked out by it. I guess they tried to cut around the more horrific parts of the death in some of those cuts, but yeah, I feel like most people I know saw this movie too young and were like, terrified by that scene. <laughs> Temple of Doom is obviously the more famous one where like all three of the Indiana Jones mm. original movies have these moments of like incredible horrific things. It's like Temple of Doom, it's Gremlins, and it's Poltergeist mm. that all kind of like lead to them making the PG-30 rating right. in the US. Where it's like, ah, your kid will mostly have a good time, you'll just have to maybe be there for them for one traumatic moment. <laughs> yeah, I think Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom is a 12 in the UK but I think all the others are PGs is I think yeah. how, it, how it works for us. And I think you get away with it because it's so over the top that it's like, wow, this isn't just going to happen in real life, is it? <laughs> but it is, it's funny, like, on an age rating tangent, it's like, we don't get our, like, PG-13 mm. equivalent until Spider-Man comes out where they realise kids want to see this fucking movie. But is kids that can't the creation the of the 12A? Yeah, that's the creation of the 12A. Yeah, I remember that just appearing one day, uh, you know, I, you know. I grew up with U's and PG's and 12's and 15's and 18's and then one day there's a 12A and I feel 12 disappeared and it just became 12A. Well yeah, every single 12 movie is a 12A so you can yeah. take a child to go see a 12 so it's similar to the PG-13 where like PG-13 just means if you're older than 13 you can take a child, you can go with a child as long as there's an adult present for every single child and basically 12A was the same thing in the UK yeah. like you still need to be 12 to buy it on DVD but if you want to take them to the cinema you can take any child to go see this at your own at your own risk yeah, like yeah. yeah slightly slightly more dodgy than a PG but like they'll probably be okay yeah, exactly. But it, in America, it's kind of like all these Spielberg and Lynn kind of movies that are all doing the same thing that kind of like result in them creating the PG-13. Gremlins being the really fucking wild one where like Gremlins is just so, so, so like a horror movie. Whereas Indiana Jones is a sequel to, to a family film that is just even more dark and depressing, ultimately. But yeah, like the end of the end of this fucking movie is, <laughs> is horrifying. It just about gets to a, tw uh, a 12 or a PG or however you want to look at it. And yeah, then the movie ends and Indiana Jones is like, we want the Ark in the museum. And then the army are just like... Nope, it's going in a weird giant warehouse. I mean, the genius of that as well, that, you know, you pull out and they've just got hundreds upon hundreds of weird things that could all be holding weird magical ghosts that will kill everyone in them. Just great, you know. One of the greatest stinger endings ever. Didn't touch funny. on the fact that, you know, when he's in this professor mode, they do commit to early on just the most realistically thirsty room full of women who don't give a shit about archaeology, but they take his class because he's the hot professor and they have the ridiculous lady who's written Love You on her eyelids. What's the movie that parodies that and has it be a guy that's making the eyes of the professor? Obviously, not a good joke. Whatever mm. movie it is, it's obviously part of gay panic uh -huh. because like the face that the person who they're making the eyes at looks absolutely fucking horrified. Mm. But like that is like the one parody moment that is like burned into my brain. But obviously, yeah, like the yeah. the horny teenagers all wanting to like bang their professor. Is, yeah. And like, you know, we shoved some glasses on him and now he's not a fucking <laughs> action Lothario man. He's a very serious professor who doesn't remember how to spell Neolithic. Oh, again, so many good moments where I'm like, was that written into the script or was that Harrison Ford like genuinely forgetting how to spell Neolithic? <laughs> and it's the take that they use. Like, and I always wonder with things like that because he's also tasked with drawing the diagram of how the staff works. And I'm like... 
do you just write it in that an actor is just gonna draw this diagram? Or do you like, you get on set, he tries to draw it, it's the equivalent of asking me to write something by hand and you, you look at it and you're like, that's fucking terrible, we need a stunt drawer. Or are you just like, ah, I'm sure Harrison I'm Ford sure can draw that? There's, there's countless movies where like, they do a shot of like, them from behind covering it up and then they'll like, <laughs> tastefully cut in so you can like, yeah. but he does like, does the live drawing in this one, doesn't he? Yeah, 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 it's, and it's fine. It's just, it's that funny thing where it's like, you probably write your movie how you write it, you get to set and then you awkwardly have to change how the scene is filmed because it's very clear this person has bad handwriting or can't draw. Right. Um, so so now we're kind of in the in the museum with, yeah. with or in the museum and in the in the university. Is Indiana Jones a terrible lecturer? My assumption is he got the job the same way so many people are taking his class, is he's just a devastatingly handsome man and he breathes through the interview and but he's like, just only you, over his head. And he's, if you <laughs> do an archaeology degree, are you frequently going on trips to other countries to go steal their artifacts for your museum, or is that just this museum's special trick? Because obviously you've got... Well, it's, it's realistic in the sense that every single college lecturer doesn't give a shit about lecturing and it's just something they do to pay the bills while they go and do their real passion. But imagine <laughs> if like, you were just told, like, oh yeah, your lecturer's away for three weeks whilst they just go gallivant somewhere else. They'll be back later on, you'll have a quiz when they get back and whatever you get taught, like, <laughs> they're away. Yeah, Mr. Jones is just fighting Nazis right now, so you're just gonna watch Shrek. <laughs> 60 years early. But yeah, it's, it's just the line from like Brody where Brody goes like, oh, if I was like five years ago, I would have gone with you. <laughs> like, what is this college where like every single fucking like archaeology lecturer is like, yeah, yeah. On, on, on the side I go out and like actually go and venture this kind of thing. Like, when you get to Jurassic Park... I was just like, what did you do this weekend? <laughs> He's like, ah, oh, you know. But when you get to Jurassic Park, it's like, they're real archaeologists. They're going to, like, go study bones. Whereas Indiana Jones' job, and apparently every single person that he knows in the world, like Belloc and Brody, is this incredibly insular community. It's an, it's of, an like, old boys network, yeah. <laughs> just international jet setters. Ah, you again. <laughs> See you in Calais. Oh, something else to touch on. Have you? Did you ever watch like Young Indiana Jones? The only Young Indiana Jones I have seen is the bit at the start of Last Crusade, which is the okay. same actor, isn't it? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So I've never seen the show. I've only seen like the almost like pilot presentation that they do in Last Crusade. Yeah. I feel I was really into it, and I now remember absolutely nothing about it, um, other than you know it's it's <laughs> it's a Young Indiana Jones. I don't know how that did, but they obviously published a lot of books. In terms of the show, I don't know how that did, but anyway. George Lucas wrote a couple episodes of the TV show. Did Spielberg ever do an episode? He did not. Rise of the Lost Ark fucking rules. Fucking like, rules. It's so good. And, like, I was discussing it with my partner afterwards where, like, she was, like, updating her letterbox score and saw that she'd given it a seven on Letterboxd. Uh... And it's just And it's just one of those things where, like, you kind of sit there and go, like, yeah, it's an easy movie to kind of, like, underrate in your head. And then you're mm. watching it again, and you go, like, no, this is... I think that's the hallmark of a great movie, though, is it all feels like you've seen it because or, or like they're doing things that now feel very commonplace and then you forget that they invented it you could be forgiven for being like oh right and i guess he's gonna do hang off the car now yeah and, and, and that kind of thing but like we've hit it a few times i, I think it's similar with jurassic park and and some other movies that we've covered just like you know they are like inventing a, a whole generation of parodies and knockoffs and homages and, and one we didn't mention in all of the various ripoffs, National Treasure, very clearly mm. an, an attempt to bring back Indiana Jones. And I gotta say, I like that first National Treasure. It's a dumber movie than Indiana Jones, but like, you know, I like what they were going for a little bit. Just iconic, effortless. And I think that's the thing with Spielberg. He doesn't do anything incredibly complicated. I mean, some of the stuff is more complicated than it looks, but like, he has just always been so gifted at making things look effortless and very effortless sort of like communication of his ideas, you know? Like, he finds a way to make everything simple. I think that's why he was so big and so successful, because it, it is incredibly sound technical filmmaking that doesn't feel in any way pretentious like he's not attempting some insane shot that no one's ever done before but like some of it is actually insane and no one's ever done it before 
Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, I mean, there's a reason why he kind of has three franchise movies that he's done. It's like Jaws, Jurassic Park, and, and Indiana Jones, like the three franchises, and only one of those was kind of like his main baby for kind of like four movies, and the others he kind of like is maybe still involved, but has kind of let go. But he's such a he's a director who just kind of like figured this shit out and knows yeah. exactly what he needs to do to kind of do it. And it's why, again, none of the, the kind of like the ripoffs of Indiana Jones are as successful. Like, The Mummy is the closest to being a successful a successful version of it but ultimately mm. it's funny that him and Lucas make Roads of the Lost Ark as like a tribute to the pulp stuff that was going on in their childhood like this is the yes. stuff that they're seeing in cinemas yeah you see it rift as recently as in Moon Knight where like they're, they're watching that like shitty kind of pulpy explorer in, in, in an African jungle or a South American jungle that kind of thing like this romantic idea about like these westerners going and, and finding these artifacts of the new world kind of thing and same thing that, that Lucas riffing on with Star Wars it's yeah. all these things from their childhood that they're modernising and kind of like making into bigger budgets and bigger stars and, mm. and making them kind of like bigger things and then I feel like what happens is everyone who comes afterwards is riffing on this rather than riffing on the original thing they've already perfected what those serialized things were trying to do and now everyone else is riffing on this kind of like perfect ideal yeah and and i think that is the ultimate the ultimate riff feels like it's an original thing and then other people riff your riff kind of thing not realizing your riff was a riff (laughs) riff I'll say riff a few more times. I'll say riff one more times. Right, so yes, I think that's enough. That's enough talk of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Good movie, probably mm-hmm. one of the best movies of the decade. Absolutely. Um, speaking of some of the best movies of the decade, next week we are doing John Carpenter's The Thing. Let me tell famously- you. I guess The Thing is the choice, but like one of the more difficult people to pick just one movie for. Oh, Carpenter's eighties is fucking insane. Yes. In the whole podcast, I don't think it's been more... Well, it might have been more difficult maybe a couple of times, but, like, not many directors put up, like, four movies that I could see being on the list, basically. The issue is, is I, The Thing is so clearly my favourite movie of his. Yes. And I think the funniest thing about The Thing that that ties into this episode and gives us now is The Thing obviously opened directly opposite E.T., Mm-hmm. And America firmly shows they like the little cute alien and not the one that kind of fucked comes up people. dog. The fucked up dog. <laughs> right, Matt, take yeah. us out of here. Will there be movies? I don't know, but we have top men looking into it. And we're out. Bye. Bye, everyone. <laughs> I tried so desperately to stop you mentioning that. I, I knew you were going there. I was like, that's my joke. That's my joke. Talk about how hot he is instead. <laughs>